Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to James, the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. That will be our sermon text for this morning. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we do trust in your unfailing love, and we pray that you would teach us, teach us to trust in it ever more. And Father, as uh, we've talked about a couple times this morning uh, in Sunday school and elsewhere, uh, it's so easy to forget. It's so e- easy to forget your unfailing love in the midst of our struggles. And so we pray that you would teach us to put our eyes on you this morning, to set our eyes on Jesus and to be able to walk with you with our eyes on Jesus in the midst of our trials. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Well, I'd like to think that I respond well to suffering. But my actions often tell a different story. It's often the little things that reveal my heart. I lose track of time and get late for a meeting and I panic. Or we're out of hot water when I go to take my morning shower and I brood. I get interrupted for what feels like the thousandth time, it's probably only the second, And I wonder, who dares disturb my perfectly scheduled day? I'd like to think that if large trials came my way, I'd be ready to face them with unshakable faith. But how I respond to the little things in life says something different. 
suffering, trials, difficulty, frustrations, these are things that we all face, whether large or small. It may be the daily inconveniences of life in a world that refuses to acknowledge me as its sovereign, or it may be the tragedies of loss and abuse and sickness that so many of us face. The letter of James is written to people who are suffering. It is addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That is most likely Jewish Christians who fled Jerusalem because of the persecutions which began around the stoning of Stephen. Many of its readers then were likely poor and homeless and hungry Jewish Christian refugees living in Gentile territory, socially outcast and economically downcast. James's advice to these people, the first thing he says to them is, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Now that statement may seem extremely insensitive. I mean, here they are, suffering, trials, difficulty, and James says, count it all joy. Really, James? Do you understand what we've gone through? Don't you understand our pain and our sadness and our loss? I mean, we've had to flee our homes. We, we are looked down upon by our neighbors. We're struggling to feed and clothe and house our children. All joy? You've got to be kidding. At least that's the way that we would read it. But James is serious. Count it all joy. And so the next question you might ask is, okay, fine, How? Why? See, James knows that there are certain things that make suffering worse. Enduring difficulty is always hard, but some things make it even harder. Trials become even harder when I don't understand what's going on and, and I don't see any way that this can work out. And on top of everything, I'm a little suspicious of God. I think God might have it out for me. And so I descend into bitterness and blaming. And so James gives us three things this morning to remember in suffering that allow us to face difficulty with faith and hope rather than fear and despair. So count it all joy. Why? God is at work. God has written the end of the story. And God is good. Those will be the three points that we'll look at that you can find in at least the PDF version of your bulletin. God is at work. God has written the end of the story, and God is good. Now, by saying these three things, James is also telling us what that joy is in. We are never joyful in our trials, but we can be joyful in the midst of them. Those are not quite the same thing. We're not joyful in our trials, but we can be joyful in the midst of them, joyful in the God who is at work, who has written the end of the story, and who is the epitome of good. Now, before we dive in uh, to those three points, I want you to notice something from verse 2. Uh, James says, when you meet trials of various kinds, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And th this is a, a helpful phrase of various kinds because it doesn't limit the kind of trials you might face. Your trials are certainly different from James's first readers. In fact, James could probably not imagine all the particular difficulties that we face. But that's okay, 
Because what he's going to say covers trials of various kinds. Whether your suffering was caused by your sin or the sin of someone else, whether you are simply facing the effects of life in a broken world or the oppressive work of Satan, whatever you face, whatever the difficulties, however big or small, what James is about to say is true for you as a believer in Jesus. And so count it all joy. Why? Number one, God is at work. Trials are hard when I don't understand what is going on. In fact, whether I understand what is going on or not totally shapes the way I see pain. Let me just give you two examples, right? There, there is a certain pain that comes when, uh, when people work out and when they exercise. Uh, you, you work hard, your muscles ache, uh, the next day you might be sore all over. But you've, you've probably heard people say this, it's a good pain. It's productive, right? It's doing something. It's making you stronger. In fact, you, you appreciate the pain because it tells you that you worked hard. Uh, without that kind of a pain after exercise, you, you might wonder if, if you were working out hard enough, if, you, if your workout was doing anything. And yet, we, we could take this a step further. Let's say you injured yourself while exercising. Now you've got a different kind of pain. And this injury is stopping you from doing the things that you enjoy. You can't work out or you can't play sports the way you used to. You can't go around, get around the way that you used to. But the doctor says, don't worry, we can operate. Now the operation will be painful and the recovery will be painful and the physical therapy will definitely be painful, but it will be worth it because you will get back everything that you lost. And so you think about it and you decide, okay, it's worth it. Let the, the pain is worth it. I'm in. Let's do it. In both of those cases, right, in the case of the, the muscle soreness that comes from exercise or in the case of surgery and the recovery that follows, the pain is okay in part because you understand it. You know what it's for. You know it's going somewhere, it's purposeful. And you accept the pain because you want that which the pain brings. You want to be stronger or you want to be well. This is what James says about trials in verses 2 through 4. Listen again to what he says. Verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." You see, one of the first things that people ask when something goes wrong is, why? Why is this happening? And James's answer is, he doesn't answer in the detail, but he answers in the big picture, and his answer is, God is at work in your trials. God is doing something. What is he doing? Well, he is, he is testing and refining your faith so, so that you persevere, steadfastness, and so that as you persevere, you will become perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, he says. That is, God is doing his work in you through the trials to make you perfect, to make you complete, to make you mature and whole, everything that you were meant to be. And now that, that trials are used this way is testified all over Scripture. Uh, Peter talks about us being grieved by various trials which test the genuineness of our faith that refine us as fire refines precious metals. Hebrews talks about God's fatherly discipline or training which, while painful, is for our good that we might share his holiness. 
Now, there are certainly other purposes uh, to trials in Scripture. Our our trials uh, make us more compassionate and able to minister to others who are also similarly suffering. Our trials show forth our weakness and so God's power in the midst of our weakness. Our trials can demonstrate our faith and God's faithfulness in the midst of that. But the purpose that James highlights here is this. God is at work in your trials to make you the person you were meant to be, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I don't know quite how that works. I mean, you you might ask, how is this trial or that trial going to make me into who God wants me to be? I don't know. But I don't have the wisdom of God. Right, he, he knows what is best for us. He, he wants what is best for us, and he is able to move us to that end. God is at work in your trials, perfecting you, making you whole and complete and mature, refining your faith, causing you to share in his holiness. You don't have to know how that works in order to know that it works and to benefit from that work. Most people who exercise don't understand the science behind why exercise works, But that doesn't negate the benefits. If you struggle to to see this and see God's work in your suffering, God's hand in your suffering, James says, ask God for wisdom. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. See, wisdom allows us to see the, the order in God's world, even in our trials, and to live in that order. It allows us to see the big picture of the way God works in the world. And if we want this wisdom, we must ask in faith, James says, verse 6, without doubting. Now, James is not saying that that God ignores any Christian with doubts or he wouldn't listen to any Christians, right? Remember uh, Jesus' response? Uh, He responded positively to the father who cried out in Mark 9, 24, I believe, help my unbelief. There was a person who came to Jesus with doubts, and yet Jesus responded positively to that. I believe, help my unbelief. That's all of us, isn't it? At some point in our life, at many points in our lives, we come to Jesus and we say, I believe, help my unbelief. And James is not talking about just just people who have doubts. He's talking about something more fundamental. Verse 8, he calls it the double-minded man. James is speaking of one who is not really committed to God at all and so will not come to see the world as God sees it. The problem here is not one of questions that you might have. It's one of commitment. I may have all kinds of questions and still be committed to God and his ways. But if I'm noncommittal, if I'm half-hearted, if my basic stance toward God is kind of yes and no, uh, James says I shouldn't expect to find the wisdom I need. If I'm half-hearted in my commitment to God as God, I'm not going to see the world as God sees it. So what James is commending then positively is wholehearted faith. When you are suffering, trust God. Look to him for wisdom. Now, as we look at Scripture, where do we find that wisdom? We find it ultimately in the cross. If you want to understand your suffering, first you have to understand Jesus' suffering. Because there at the cross, the wisdom of God is displayed. Think about Jesus and his suffering for a moment. Throughout his life, we are told that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered, Hebrews 5.8, which means even his suffering shaped him. Then Jesus went to the cross 
where his obedience reached its climax as he said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And there on the cross, Jesus suffered for sinners. You see, at the end of Jesus' earthly life, he faced the greatest trial any of God's people have ever known. He was falsely accused. He had a sham trial. He was stripped naked and beaten and mocked and shamed and ridiculed. He was put on public display, paraded through town, nailed to a cross, and suffered a bitter and agonizing death. And worst of all, the Father turned his back on him, the one whom Jesus had always known as his Father and protector and defender, turns his back on him. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why? He faces his trial, and here Jesus cries out, why? What's going on? What are you doing? And of course, God was doing something in that. He was laying on Jesus the sins of the world. This shows us, of course, Jesus crying out why, as do the Psalms, many, many of the Psalms, that asking why is not wrong. People should not ignore the cry of their hearts. They should take that cry to God. Now, Jesus' cross is, from one perspective, the greatest tragedy in history, and yet it's also the greatest triumph as well. Because right here, God is reconciling the world to himself, bringing the greatest good out of the greatest evil. And after the cross comes the resurrection. Jesus is raised up to the Father, given eternal life, and crowned with glory and honor. See, here in Jesus, we see the wisdom of God, that suffering comes before glory, the cross before the crown. That is the wisdom of God. That is the way of Jesus. That is the way of the cross. And God was at work in that the whole time. He was sovereign over Jesus' suffering and death. In Acts chapter 4, God's people prayed at one point, Acts 4.27, they said, For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, God was at work. It doesn't take away from the evil of Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the people of that day, not at all. But God was at work through the evil for good. And if you are in Christ, what that means is God is at work in your trials as well. If people are sinning against you, that doesn't make their sin any less and it doesn't make your pain any less. But God is at work in it and through it for good. Now, that may make you a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, how can you say God is at work in this? And as I said uh, last week in the afternoon service, there are really only two options. Either God is not at work in this, which means the evil in your life is just that, evil and unredeemable, pointless and purposeless, or God is at work, which means the evil in your life, while still being evil and horrible and bad, is heading someplace good. God is at work in the midst of it. God is at work in and through your trials. Trust him. In fact, count it all joy. God is at work. God is doing something right here, right now, in the midst of your struggles, whatever they are. The God who brings life out of death is working in your life to bring life out of death, wholeness out of brokenness, joy out of pain. God is making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is making you holy. God is sanctifying you, setting you apart for his purposes and glory. Trust him and rejoice in his work, even in the midst of your sorrow. 
Now, can I say what, what this means is we might experience sorrow and joy, joy simultaneously in the Christian life. James isn't saying just put on a happy face and pretend everything's okay. But no joy in God's work even as you experience sorrow in your trials. And so we, we mourn, yes, but we mourn as, as, as those who have hope in God. Which brings us to the next point, and we'll, we'll speed up a little bit for the next two points. So count it all joy. Why? One, God is at work. Two, God has written the end of the story. Trials are hard when I don't understand why, what's going on, what's the purpose. Trials are also hard when I can't imagine a good outcome. Again, I shared this illustration last Sunday afternoon, but it's worth mentioning again. Uh, I, I was watching, this was maybe a year ago now, I was watching the movie Knives Out with David Keithley. He preached here a few weeks ago, if you were here for that. And, and uh, I tend to get really into movies. I, I kind of invest in the characters. I, I feel all the tension. And sometimes I feel the tension so much I actually have to stop the movie, get up, kind of walk around, just so I can sit down again and focus on what's going on. And uh, if you know that movie in particular, Knives Out, uh, it's funny, but it's also kind of tense. And I looked at David in the middle of watching this movie with him, and I said, look, here is the best case scenario, uh, and I don't really like it. I don't like where this movie is going. And he told me, don't worry, it turns out better than you can imagine. And that was enough for me. I could then sit, still on pins and needles, but sit and persevere to the end. Uh, and, it, and of course, uh, if you know the movie, it did turn out better than I could imagine. Now, life is not a movie, but it is a story. And trials are particularly hard when we can't imagine a good outcome. When we look at our lives and think, I'm not sure where this is going, but it doesn't look good, it makes the trial that much harder. But God has written the end of the story, and it is better than you can imagine. Verses 9 through 12 say this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the first thing to say about these verses and, and hear this is that money is a trial. You notice James speaks to the rich and the poor here. Money is a trial. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you have much or little. It's a trial either way. Uh, the book of Proverbs brings this out in Proverbs chapter 30. The, the writer says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So money, whether you have a lot or a little, brings with it a kind of temptation. And James begins to speak to the poor and the rich here. And it, it's a little unclear, both the commentators, it's a little unclear to me, whether the rich are wealthy Christians who need to be reminded that the stuff of this life is passing away, or whether he's speaking to wealthy non-Christians who are being told that judgment is on its way 
for the way they've acted in this world. I'm actually going to assume that James is talking to Christians because I assume that he's talking to people who are there in the room, and so people who are at least open to Christianity. Now, if that is the case, he addresses the lowly brother and the rich brother. And to the lowly brother, the the humble poor, he says, boast in your exaltation. And what he's saying is, boast in your position in Christ. You may be lowly here and now. You, You may be a nobody in the world's eyes, but you have status in Jesus. You are children of the living God, saints in God's house, servants of the Most High. Don't look at yourself the way the world looks at you according to the wisdom of this age. Look at yourself from God's perspective. Don't mourn over your worldly poverty, but boast in your spiritual riches. And then to the rich, James says, boast in your humiliation. Now again, if James is speaking to non-Christians, this is kind of an ironic statement. He's saying, go ahead and boast in your riches because they are worthless and are about to fade away. If James is speaking to wealthy Christians, though, he's saying, don't boast in your wealth. Again, why? It's about to pass away. It won't last. The riches of this world are like the grass with which withers, so is your wealth about to pass away. And so don't boast in that. Rather, boast in your identification with your fellow Christians, the lowly, which in that day would have been a social suicide, and so their humiliation as they identify with the least of these. The point is, either way, James wants both the rich and the poor not to look at or evaluate themselves from the perspective of the wisdom of this age, but to look at themselves from the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of the final outcome. We can't judge the story from the middle. We judge the story from the ending. A movie is made or ruined by the ending, and the meaning of a movie can be completely changed by that ending. Every M. Night Shyamalan movie ever made confirms that. But really, this is true of every movie with a really satisfying ending which brings together all the threads and you you, you get to the end of the movie and you think, ah, no, that was a great ending. And the movie kind of is worth it because it's brought you to that point. Well, what is our ending? Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has prepared, has promised to those who love him. Yes, your, your life is full of trials, difficulties, pain, sorrow, but here is God's blessing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now note, right, you, you must endure. Uh, like an athlete who must finish the race or a soldier who must make it through the battle. But this is not some kind of special endurance that only a few can obtain. We, we, We simply must stand in our faith, clinging not to ourselves, not to our works, not to our theological smarts, not even to our faith, but clinging to Jesus. Remain steadfast. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life. Now, by crown, James has in mind the victor's crown, the the laurel wreath given to those who were victorious in the Roman games. But he calls this crown the crown of life. And and what does that mean? Uh, Well, first, it's uh, obviously it's a symbol for eternal life. Uh, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 5.10. He says, after you have suffered a little while, 
The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God has life prepared for his children. Persevere through the trials, because after trials, life is coming. But James says the crown of life. The the crown, right? A crown is a symbol both of victory but also of status. To receive the crown of life is to be a victor. Uh, In this life, you you may be a nobody. People may walk all over you, but, but God has a crown for you. You will be recognized as a victor on the last day as you persevere in faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the end of our story. Victory, life, and glory in Jesus. It's better than you can imagine. It's better than getting a gold medal at the Olympics, right? It's it's better than getting the promotion you always wanted. It's it's better than than buying your own home or or getting the girl or whatever you have as the goal of your life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, you might rightly ask, well, how do we know that's the end of our story? How do we know that we have life coming? Well, again, we look to Jesus. Jesus suffered horribly in this life. He was unjustly put to death, but he did not stay dead. Nor did he merely, merely come back to life. He rose from the dead and entered into a new kind of life, life in the fullness of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Christ is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that as Christ rose, so we will rise on the last day. First death, then resurrection. That is our hope, right? That is our glory. That is the end of our story. And for that, we wait with expectation and joy. Life is coming in fullness. So count it all joy. Why? One, God is at work right now in the midst of your story. Two, God has written the end of the story, which is better than you can imagine. And three, briefly, because God is good. Sometimes when bad things happen, uh, we respond poorly, and then we say things like, well, if, if she hadn't done what she did, I wouldn't have said what I said. And what we're saying is my behavior isn't my fault. Uh, Someone else did something bad to me, so I responded as I did. We blame our circumstances. But in blaming our circumstances, we are really blaming God. He could have done things differently in your life, but he didn't. And trials are really that much harder when I don't trust God, when, when, when I think that God might have it out for me. Now, we could talk about this for some time, but but... What I need to say here is this. James says that that when we are tempted or when we face trials, actually the word for trial and temptation are the same Greek word, but he says when we face trials, we shouldn't say God is tempting me. God himself cannot be tempted to do wrong, and so he tempts no one. What tempts us in the midst of our trial is our own desire our own desire for things to be different, our own desire for things to be better, our own desire for our comfort, and so on. What tempts us is our own desire, which, which like a, a juicy worm on a hook, lures away and entices an unsuspecting fish to take the bait. And in that way, desire, James says, gives birth to sin, which, of course, says desire in itself is not sin. Desire gives birth to sin. Sin grows up and brings forth death. And so James warns us, don't be deceived. God is not the source of temptation. Rather, God is the source of every good and perfect gift. 
God brings good things into our lives. He has not the slightest shade of gray. Rather, if you are a Christian, God is not bringing forth sin and death. He has brought forth you by his word so that you already participate in his new creation. See, God has already given you the best of gifts, James is saying. He has caused you caused you to be born again by his spirit that already in the new birth you might participate in and get a foretaste of that new creation that is coming. The end of the story is uh, broken. The end of the story has already broken in in the presence of the spirit in our lives. So God is good. His plans are good. He, he is not tempting you. He is, he is testing and refining your faith. He has made you new through the gospel. He is making you new through trials. And when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? God is at work. He has written the end of the story. And he is good in the midst of it all. Whatever else is going on, you can rest in those realities. And you will find joy in God even in the midst of the inconveniences and the tragedies of life. Let's pray. Our Father, it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget who you are and what you are doing in our lives. It's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get focused on the difficulties and focused on the pain that we lose sight of you. I pray, Father, that you would help us. Help us day by day to keep our eyes on you, to keep our eyes on Jesus, and to rest in what you are doing in our lives and what you will do on the last day knowing that you are a good God who cares for your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.